Welcome to Anatomy of a Leader podcast series, the fifth episode of seven. Co-hosted by board director Raquel Brigham Brown, based in Los Angeles, California, and behavioral psychology author Timothy Maurice Webster, who lives in Johannesburg, South Africa. Raquel and Timothy invite you into their boardroom dialogue to explore behavioral and neuroscience research and transformative leadership paradigms. In this episode, Health is Wealth, Raquel and Timothy explore wellness in the workplace with Dr. Sidi Goulet, founder of Metaspace Lifestyle Institute. Dr. Goulet is a medical doctor who discovered her passion for wellness early in her career. Corporate CEOs affectionately call her the wellness architect. They seek her out to consult and design pioneering wellness programs in organizations of all sizes. She has a unique expertise designing programs for corporates with 10,000 plus employees. She also has a thriving private practice geared to the needs of executives, women, and children. Dr. Goulet joins Raquel and Timothy in the boardroom to dialogue the principles of workplace wellness and the fundamentals necessary to design a leadership culture that encourages employees to bring their whole self to work. The board case is made for investing in workplace wellness. The larger the investment, the greater return to the bottom line. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on Canadian healthcare, but I do know a lot about U.S. healthcare, and it's not a healthcare system, it's a sick care system. And we do a great job with that. Um, you know, it's for, if you're ill in, a, in, a, in, in the U.S., it's a great system because you can get quick care, you'll get effective care. Uh, but what we don't have is really health care. It's not about health. Because honestly, uh, when it comes to being sick, you want your doctor there. Uh, but when it comes to being healthy, it's about us. We're in charge of our health. And that means to take the steps that we need to stay healthy. Dr. Tidi Goulet, welcome to the Anatomy of a Leader podcast. I appreciate you joining Raquel and myself on this journey of, to explore wellness as a leading wellness voice in the, the Southern Hemisphere in this part of the world. It is only, only uh, the core of who I am and it's my passion. So it's great to be appreciated and uh, I've been doing this for long enough to know I wouldn't want to do anything else. Let's go back a bit. When did you fall in love with wellness? Oof, wow, phenomenal question. I don't think I have a specific memory of a time where I fell in love with it. I think wellness found me slowly over the course of me starting to be a doctor. So when I was a medical student, um, you're exposed to various disciplines. And there was all sorts of things, gynecology, neurology, cardiology. I could have studied any organ and specialized in anything. What wouldn't leave me um, as the years went by was just this psychosocial conscious, as I describe it, that I kept growing as, as a scientist. Um, I couldn't let go of the reality that so many conditions um, that we are treating very late in people's presentations are preventable. So just that very nagging feeling of, well, if they are preventable, where are the doctors that are trying to support the conversation of helping people prevent? And I think just that question led me down a path of recognizing that there is an industry that falls within that conversation called preventative medicine. And the, and the definition of wellness is, is a state where the body um, the heart, mind, et cetera, are in harmony. And I recognized that I wanted to be the doctor that wanted to bet for the team that tries to prevent disaster from happening when it comes to the disease journey. And that's really where I realized wellness is my thing. So I would definitely say that I was sure that wellness is a greater passion than curative medicine, probably two years after I graduated. I remember 
in my when I first turned 40 years old, I returned from a trip in Botswana. Mm. I'm not sure if you remember this. And it mm. felt like my entire kind of nervous system had basically fallen apart or erupted in my wellness. Everything I'd counted on as a professional, being able to yeah. jump on and off flights, being able to work long nights, it all came crashing down. And mm. you sat me to, you, you pulled me to the side and you said, you really got to take care of your health. Do you remember that moment? I absolutely do. Um, in actual facts, I think the, the, the thing you probably don't realize about that moment is just how nerve wracking it is for a wellness doctor to tell a human being that they are fallible, that they are not invinci as invincible as they'd love to be. But it's been a large part of my journey, Tim, in terms of um, educating clients. Um, the objective is not to make people feel less of themselves, is to really help people understand themselves better. The body is a machine. Um, and what's been amazing is that I found that human beings start to appreciate the concept of looking after themselves through their behavior because they look after most of their things in a very specific way. People look after their property in a specific way. People look after their family and loved ones in a specific way. Why not look after your own body, this vehicle that helps you live out your greatest aspirations and dreams in a specific way? Um, the second thing is to let people know there's consequences to behavior. And a lot of very high-functioning human beings are as guilty um, of neglecting themselves as, as the people who readily engage in high-risk behavior. Let's talk a little bit about why it's so critical and so important for leaders to understand the power of wellness. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, the conversation should be simple, but I do appreciate that, you know, when you are passionate about something, it doesn't mean that it translates easily to other people. The value of wellness for me lies at the core of our humanity. How we look after each other is related to how we look after ourselves. And whether we're in a workplace environment, whether we're home, whether we're in a a government institution uh, making those very tough decisions of safeguarding an entire country, the, for me, the narrative is the same. Um, answering the question, how are you doing, is a very important part of how the rest of the day unfolds. And when you're planning to go end up in a certain destination, nobody, I always say, nobody wakes up to not, to not have a day um, that is geared towards a specific goal. Well, I would hope not. Um, some people do. They have that luxury. But most of us have a specific destination in mind with why we work hard, why we invest energy, et cetera. The appreciation for people who are caretakers, and that's where leaders fit for me, just maybe to give it context. Leaders are caretakers um, of, of various things and people. And when you've got people who are custodians or guardians of something, the question then is important. Who takes care of those guardians? There's always an assumption that leaders have an inherent roadmap of looking after themselves. That's why they can shop every day and look after everyone else. And I used to be, interestingly enough, before I got into leadership wellness, I used to be one of those people who assume that leaders have the tools, the strategies, the knowledge, the know-how, and the willingness to look after themselves. But in most cases, um, most leaders don't have the language of looking after themselves. They've got a very easy language of how to look after everything else. 
Um, and I think this is also very prevalent in the, in the natural way of being um, that women who are mothers, etc., can can be seen in the same light. Those who take care of others often walk the longest journey of learning how to take care of themselves. I think that's absolutely been my experience as well. And I think for for leaders, as as you mentioned, also mothers, is it's the idea of feeling they don't have the time. So a lot, so, so in both cases, they know what they should be doing, but I don't have the time. So how do I, how do I make the time? And I know for me and working with leaders, that's been, that's been the breakthrough for them is figuring out, you know, as you say on the airplane, what do they tell you? Put your face mask on first before you put your child's face mask on. So you can't, take care of everyone else and and specifically your organization if you're not well so put your own oxygen mask and that's a very as you say dr goulet that's a hard message um but at a certain age as you came to know timothy you have to confront it and uh, either you you know prevail or it takes you down but at, at a certain age your bad habits do catch up with you uh, Dr. Gulli, you have set up wellness centers and designed wellness practices within large organizations with thousands of employees. What are some of the things that you've found to be common and consistent um, that lead to some of the mistakes that leaders are making in terms of their mindset? It's, it's such a good question to ask because the, the first thing is, is the company's understanding of wellness is where I think the greatest learning has been. For many, for many organizations, and, and I'm not gonna restrict the accountability to just the leaders, who in this case, I'll, I'll, I'll qualify as being exco, et cetera. Um, for many organizations, wellness is a very poorly understood um, concept. Um, a lot of people believe they know what it is. Um, and because the culture came in mostly as a screening um, experience. So we come and we check specific things and we tell you what you need to improve on. And pretty much that is the wellness experience, right? Um, the, the true um, value of what wellness can do for an organization has been lost, I would say, over the years without more medical professionals, I guess, having a voice in the space of what it is. Um, tying wellness to preventative medicine has obviously helped change the concept because there have been very specific models that have incentivized uh, corporate professionals and companies to take on the practice of wellness. Um, and, living out, and living out those values and seeing how much they impact productivity and performance positively has been where, fortunately, some companies have started to understand this thing has real value. It's not just a intangible um, addition to the company, but it's actually a very important aspect of keeping our human capital um, integrity at bay. And, and my big thing with this is most companies that are still very heavily reliant on people need wellness as an integral part of the strategy, of a growth strategy, of a continuity strategy, of a recovery strategy. Um, you can't expect to get to a destination when you're not willing to look after the elements that get you there. And I think it is becoming more and more important for organizations to understand what their wellness language is. 
which is one of the big things I do as an advisor is to, is to assist companies appreciate that in the context of this big field called wellness, what is the language we want to be known for? Are we carers? Do we care? Not all companies can answer that honestly, by the way, because what is caring? Um, you look at the normal culture of most organizations, and one of the biggest things that still needs work is the concept that vulnerability allows for chaos. A lot of organizations believe that allowing employees to be vulnerable and disclose their, their personal stuff um, creates a culture um, of distraction and chaos and lack of focus. When, in fact, science has proven that if you address the psychological factors that affect the day-to-day -day challenges, faced by employees, you will actually have a more engaged, more connected, more resilient, more productive workforce. So in South Africa, do you feel like the wellness community or the wellness culture is at an mm -hmm. adolescent stage? And I ask that because my experience is that the large corporates, because they're large corporates and many have, have um, relationships, they're more multinational, are more vested in it. But my sense is that the majority of South Africans in their workplaces don't have wellness. Um, I absolutely agree with that, Recall One of the main reasons I think for us, it's still a, a growing um, sector, so to speak, um, as, as a very serious part of company culture is because wellness is largely seen as a checklist. Um, it's an item that just needs to be reported in a meeting. We've done this. We've done that. The, the leadership model around wellness tends to be a grudge purchase. Um, and at the very best, a legislative requirement, because there are elements of wellness, like occupational health, health that is legally um, important in the country. You must have occupational health and safety uh, models. And so the... The most difficult part, I feel, of South African culture is I still feel that there's a huge philosophy that says you've got to figure yourself out in the workplace. And I think it's that, it's that narrative that still makes wellness a very slow um, concept to be assimilated in a country that's all mostly about survival. We're about economic survival. We're about equality. We're about all these other issues that are equally important. So wellness starts to almost take a backseat to that because it's, listen, you've got, for example, one of the big things organizational um, structures will always say to me is, we've given them medical aid. What else are we supposed to do? It's, it's a very interesting rebuttal to, to the need to invest in more programs to improve the well-being of employees because a lot of companies see wellness as a transactional <laughs> requirement. They don't actually engage with it further. And that's the opportunity I, through my journey with organizations, try and, and unpack to say to them, there is so many layers that you can unlock and, and advance if you really understand what wellness can do for your employees and that it's not a transaction. It is relation, it's part of relationship management. Wellness is a critical element of a company uh, managing its relationship with its employees. And so in South Africa, am I to understand you to say that the medical aid is primarily for curative purposes, if I use your, your language of curative versus preventive? <laughs> it's used for both. Um, I can say that a lot of medical aid 
companies have come in with packages for especially corporate wellness uh, benefits that have driven the conversation of preventative medicine further uh, than before. Excuse me, because the retail model of medical aid in South Africa has for many, many years largely focused on curative right. um, care. And in, I'd say the last 10, 15 years, we've seen an evolution. There were specific medical aids that came with products that were geared towards living healthier, which in our space would be around wellness and prevention. And those have made their way into the corporate space, which is great. However, there's obviously still a very large proportionate of the workforce that is uninsured. So not all companies uh, roll out medical aid for their workers. It's companies who can afford it. But it is encouraging to see that there's a more balance um, between preventative uh, benefits as well as obviously the expected curative benefits that you would get from a medical aid cover. And so from a, from a board standpoint, what are some of the things mm -hmm. that you would advocate that boards really put on their agenda and begin to think about more seriously at, at the same time, also the government, um, when you talk about that, there's a certain, there's certain mandates, but in terms of an overall mandate for the wellness of people in the entire country. So sort of at two levels of leadership, what, what is some of your advice? One of the big things I, I try to drive home in my wellness models when it comes to companies understanding the wellness journey of their employees better is this concept that people enter your company at different life stages and being able to create supportive channels that allow them to manage those life stages will lead to high, highly productive and engaged employees that give you what you want as a company, which is a value for your bottom line. So one of the big things we look at when it comes to the life stage model is there are individuals within certain age groups that have specific areas um, of their lives that are of high priority. For example, between 10 20s and late 30s, most people are in what we call the productive years. They're creating families, creating long-lasting relationships. They are acquiring things like property, so there's a lot going on there. Um, and any challenges they're having in those aspects of their life is going to affect the quality of work that they give the company. There are then those individuals who have matured from that phase, who are a bit older, and are pretty much stabilized in terms of what their lifestyles look like, and what they're likely to have for the rest of their lives. But they may still have specific factors that affect them. And so it's really important when you have a better understanding of an organization of the profile of the people who work for the organization, you're able to chart the appropriate wellness program that speaks to the needs of those people. And I firmly believe that if you do that, if you have that sensitivity as an organization, you will always get the quality of employees that most companies seek, which is fully engaged, not absent. <laughs> well, most companies wouldn't <laughs> like it to be absent. Um, but most importantly, give their best work. Um, and I believe that the, the two are really, really tied. You know, this would not be a conversation if I didn't bring up neuroscience and behavioral science, right? So- Of course. <laughs> this, this is not, a South African conversation. This is a global conversation. Whether someone is in the UK, the US, yeah. wherever you are, some of the latest yeah. findings are corporations are starting to use behavioral science. Here's an example. Google, for example, are, is using behavioral science by showing that in canteens, when people first walk into the canteen, 
they make it more difficult to get to the food that's the, the unhealthiest food. So they've actually designed, they psychologically designed, for example, how they put the water at eye level because studies show that where people's eyes are drawn to first, they're more likely to choose from. So they've increased water drinking um, just by designing the environment. And we're starting to see that neuroscientists are speaking about ensuring that there's brain healthy food around all day, that certain foods uh, should be had during certain times of day. And then the evening, people are designing an environment for health uh, engagement because people often, what the neuroscientists and behavioral scientists are finding is that if you design for the effect, the wellness effect that you want, then it, it becomes a part of people's sort of lifestyle. What are some of your sort of tips about designing based on understanding right. of human behavior and environment for people to be well? Well, it's, it's interesting you asked me this question, Tim, because in actual fact, I inadvertently gained the nickname from CEOs of quite a number of organizations as the wellness architect, mainly because my entire advisory approach is about creating the wellness experience. Um, neuroscience does influence my methodology a lot, because if you think about it, a lot of what we actually do as human beings is guided by our very specific way of linking audiovisual and other stimulatory experiences. So our choices, if you look at yourself and even how you behave when you go to a normal retail store and what catches your eye, it would definitely make perfect sense that if the same thing is available in a corporate experience from a psychological point of view, you will probably behave in the same way. And so I influence not just the design of wellness programs and topics and health educational models, but it's important that the entire organization is designed to improve what I call the health behavior of employees. And so neuroscience is a huge part of that because outside of people participating in wellness days, the day-to-day -day experience of wellness is the most important. We come to work and spend a large part of our day at work. And food is a very important aspect of good health <laughs> and when it's not carried out well, of obviously poor health. So our choices of, in terms of what we eat, and many organizations have in-house canteens, and a crucial part of my approach as an advisor is to review and revise and sometimes redesign the entire canteen experience with the providers, of course, because it's really important to influence the mind. Science has proven that we are visual creatures when it comes to the choices we often make when it comes to food. So where we see the food, so the angle, you've already mentioned that when you were talking about canteens that are designed to lead you towards the healthy food. Where we see the food and how the food is presented is very important. Um, and let's be frank, healthy food doesn't always get the best aesthetic presentations. But it's been great to see that a lot of companies are paying attention to the design of the wellness experience and food is a central part of that. Mm. For, for the leader who is in the, who've come inside of the anatomy of a leader boardroom right now and thinking about both the environment they need to create and the culture of wellness as well as in their own life, 
how much ownership, you know, should mm. a leader, leader take? Should be seen taking, you know what I mean? Like, should they be seen owning the idea of wellness? I think one of the main reasons I decide to take wellness to the leaders is because that is my firm belief. Um, it is so difficult um, to improve the culture of an organization when your top layer doesn't believe in the value of the story you want to tell. And wellness is a story. Wellness is a story about caring. Wellness is a story about creating a safe space. Wellness is a story about about driving each other towards a destination that will not be at the expense of anyone. So one of the things that I'm, I'm a big advocate for is having conversations with leaders about what they believe about their own health. Because you can actually learn a lot about why they lead in a specific way and what their views are on how they value wellness in their organization based on what they believe about their own health. Leaders who tend to believe that you should keep things to yourself for example, are very resistant in accepting models where psychological support is the norm in an organization. They will usually want to actually get rid of it if the budget is constrained. Um, leaders who also are very, who are very uncomfortable in general um, sharing, whether it's sharing a personal story um, or whether it's sharing a, a part, part of themselves in an organization, tend to be less impressed let me put it that way with wellness presentations that encourage that very culture the critical thing for me um tim when it comes to the buy-in of leaders and where i feel they should sit when it comes to how they play a role in advancing a wellness culture is number one to examine whether they lead in a manner that jeopardizes the dignity of their team i think it's such a it's such a critical question but it's an uncomfortable question and dignity is a very interesting word because someone not being able to feel safe at work is jeopardizing their sense of dignity. And not enough leaders are, are willing to ask their employees, is it safe for you to work here? Because most leaders tend to focus on physical safety. Very few leaders want to approach psychological safety. And yet when you look at the, at the issues that ail employees at the workplace itself, sexual harassment, mental health stigma. We now have a new thing, um, you know, unfortunately happening during the COVID-19 pandemic called COVID-19 stigma. It's such an important time for leaders to examine how they lead in the conversation around health. The, the second thing for me is uh, them asking themselves, do they lead in an environment that is safe, non-judgmental and non-discriminatory? Because that those are crucial pillars of creating psychological safety. You may not have solutions for everybody because employees come from such diverse backgrounds, but at the very least is the environment safe that people don't feel discriminated against. And then the last thing for me is, do they have a sense of care about what their employees go through? Or does it have no value in the performance and productivity of their employees? Leaders have to get honest about their caring bone. In the new world, it's becoming important that there is an examination of compassion and empathy as an integral part of leadership culture. And not enough leaders feel comfortable with words like vulnerability, disclosure, sharing. And it's so interesting that when you look at how employees navigate performance, you hear words in HR meetings, example, like, I don't feel my boss cares. 
I don't think that I'm heard. I don't think that my work matters. So bridging the gap between the leader-employee dynamic is important. And in that sense, I believe that there is a level of ambassadorship leaders should have when it comes to wellness. They don't have to be perfect champions, but at the very least, creating a culture that it's okay in our company to share. It's okay in our company to work through your stuff. Here are the channels. It's okay in our company to have days where you're not at your best and we support you where we can to make it better. I would say it's not that they are brand ambassadors or that this part of their personal brand. I, I, I mean, I really think, as you said, Dr. Goulet, it's what creates high performance. So yeah. if, if that's what the leader is looking to do, wellness is a major plank that informs everything because you mm-hmm. get performance through people and the better, more whole your people are, the better the performance will be. And so I think that as people have signed on to Black Lives Matters as leaders and in, in other mm-hmm. statements, the rubber meets the road with what do you actually do? It's not what yeah. you say, but it's actually what you do. And I think all of the things that you said Dr. Goulet, are the things that make for an inclusive culture. Uh, One of the things we didn't do on our call this morning was start off with a check-in, which is really the opportunity to to let everybody know how everyone is doing. Is doing. You can then know how should we proceed given with with where we are collectively. Um, Mm. And those are the kinds of things where you built into your culture that we care about you, that we care about your wellness um, and that you care about someone else's wellness. So I think it's an important aspect. And I think you're saying tying it to culture. That's the key. I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. And one of the big things for me is the leaders who do show that they care can have evidence to show how it's improved their companies. So the argument that wellness models don't impact um, on the bottom line is also starting to be proven false time and time and again, because a lot of leaders of well-established internationally renowned entities. I mean, you mentioned um, a company um, a couple of minutes ago, Tim Google. Google has been one of those amazing companies where it sits year in and year out as one of the best companies to work for, for employees, not just because of all the incredible tech and advancement that it exposes its company to, but its culture is inclusive. Its culture, I mean, I've spoken to the the employees of, for example, Google South Africa. And it's interesting when you hear the companies that rank highly, what employees actually um, say is the reason the company ranks highly. And it's hardly ever, oh, they give me great parking. Um, you know, my, my, my salary is great. It's, they care about me. They, they create an environment where I can go and get support for my stuff. Or they offer me, um, a channel that allows me to sort out legal stuff or it's going through a divorce. I had that, you know, most employees will demonstrate examples of caring. So I think it's becoming really important for leaders to understand that that's the new language. 
not so much what you pay your employee, but uh, how do you demonstrate that you understand that they have a life and are living a life while they're working for you? Talking a little bit about this moment in history, you know, there's a lot of tax on the employee, you know, grappling with issues around people, around health, around stress, you know, global uncertainty. There's, the, you know, the, the conscious and unconscious mind is taxed very heavily. So you yeah. want to build an environment where people are able to respond to trauma, be resilient. And no one mm -hmm. is talking about the collective toll that's taken on people's teams. You know, right. people are just sort of suppressing it and you're finding serious top leaders having breakdowns. Right. Give us two things you would say to a leader about designing an environment that's highly resilient, produces resilience, or produces an environment where people can be resilient and bounce back. First thing, be brave enough to ask the question, how are you doing? Whether as a leader you're asking team leaders, supervisors, managers, Get brave about asking the questions that get you to the answers that help you build the resilient company you want. And the first question I always say to leaders is, get brave about asking how you're doing. Dare yourself to ask. Because most leaders, that is an icebreaker of what I call designing the right program for your organization. It is not as frightening a question because it actually shows you where the pain points are. You're so correct in talking about the, the kind of mental tax burden employers are having, but the environment has got to feel safe for people to share what tax burden they're having that's impacting their ability to work with you and for you. So in those teams where you have leaders, dare to ask your managers to find out how their teams are doing and come back. Take the audit. Take the audit, you don't have to hire a company. Take the audit, get brave, look at the answers. And then number two, do not burden yourself with the responsibility of solving those answers on your own. Where applicable, get the right people to help you navigate executing the job of looking after your employees to the best of the company's resources as well as your own. Sometimes what leaders do is they'll take the audit and try and solution themselves. So they are very, very, very fragile beings themselves during this time. And it's okay. You're not less of a leader because you don't have a solution to a problem. Get the right people. Get the right soldiers to help you help your team. It's that simple. There really is no magic trick for me. I really want to ask you, Dr. Goulet, about the role going forward that you think telemedicine mm -hmm. will have in providing greater uh -huh. access uh, <laughs> to, the, to, to really more working class yep. people. Yep. And it seems as though during this time, all the barriers to telemedicine have been hurt. Removed. Yeah. So <laughs> I... I, I I think in this context of organization and organizational wellness, it seems right. like it can have a significant role. As, as an advocate of access to care at all levels, um, no one could have been happier when the barriers to execute telemedicine um, nationally, but also just in various spaces, was made possible. 
Um, just to give you context, I think even now, in our country alone, I think we've been trying to lobby for it for the last 10 years to make it the norm. And in comes COVID-19 and wow, it's now allowed. I can imagine what it's like for other medical professionals in other countries to have the same experience, to be able to extend your care um, through other platforms. And that's really for me what it ultimately is about, is healthcare providers should be able to provide the care in safe, ethical platforms that the patient can benefit from. And irrespective of a socioeconomic class, you should be able to get the care. So what I hope for is that the telemedicine barriers that have been lifted are not just going to be made available during COVID pandemic, but that we will actually redesign a health model after the season that allows everybody to feel that they can access care when they need it. It's been wonderful to see that people can access information um, in different ways, but I think it's important to also highlight the need for healthcare providers to be responsible to be ethical, um, and to continue to uphold the principles of care um, that face-to-face -face, um, access has. And as long as I think we are responsible in providing the care, um, there can always be more models that can be rolled out long-term. So COVID has disrupted even our industry, I believe, in a positive way, um, and challenged us to grow outside of the confines of our consulting room. And it's great to see the growth of the virtual consult. Um, and I hope that a lot of individuals, as you've indicated, are benefiting from it. I really hope they are. Because we're happy that we can provide the care in more ways now. So in an organizational context, do you see that perhaps telemedicine may make some leaders and some boards more... Receptive. Receptive to... Mm. to the idea that this is a, uh, an investment worth making for sure employees. um i do think yeah i do think that there are very specific cost differences between the face-to-face -face model and the virtual model and the virtual being arguably uh, more cost effective i think the key thing as long as the care is provided in platforms that are secure that don't infringe on patient confidentiality that in most cases the organization themselves don't control access to because I think the biggest risk with telemedicine is if it's designed within the to run within the platform of the organization, employees will obviously be very, very cautious because they'll worry about the you know confidentiality being infringed upon. So I think as long as it is provided as an external, uh, from an external source, so to speak, in terms of the IT or tech aspect, I do think that a lot more organizations will be willing to adopt wellness programs more readily. Great. And the last question I would have is about, as a doctor, what do you think is the defining moment for a leader when they realize that their health is their wealth? I have to be very honest, having, tre having treated or, or managed the health of leaders over the past decade or so, that for many of them, it's unfortunately usually a crisis experience um, or what I term a health scare. You know, Tim made a very, very real example of what many leaders um, go through to get to that defining moment. And that is when they realize themselves that they are not invincible to their own lifestyle choices and how they lead um, can actually lead to an overextended, overwhelmed system. So the majority of leaders have their defining moments in moments of crisis. Um, what I hope a lot more leaders will start 
to experience is having their defining moments when they see the level of one gratitude um, to really functioning effective wellness models playing out from their employees and two when they actually experience the increase um, in the productivity of the organization because they've got an engaged workforce um, happy people express themselves <laughs> that's the one thing i've realized is they're very good at expressing gratitude they're very good at expressing um, the fact that they love working there and i think not a lot of leaders feel that their roles are thankless jobs um, and those are the defining moments that i i wish for leaders to have is when they they experience the value of their work in terms of investing in wellness through the the culture of, of the workforce and how the culture gives them that feedback continuously and i have seen it work you know at play and it's a wonderful thing when a leader says to you I really doubted that, you know, wellness model X was going to really make a difference. But even my HR this comes to me and says, this thing has been the best thing in her life. She now does this, 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 and she feels like a better human being. And leaders deserve to hear, as small as it may sound now, they deserve to know that what they do makes people better. Dr. Sidi Guli, thank you so much for joining us on the Anatomy of a Leader podcast. Thanks for listening to Episode 5, Health is Wealth. Don't miss the next episode, Democratize 4IR, with Sean Lachetti, President of Global Markets, Duke University Corporate Education. Please share this episode and the series with leaders you know who want to make a difference in the world they touch. Also, please leave a comment and rate the episode. To learn more about Raquel and Timothy, visit RadicalAbundantMindset.com and TimothyMaurice.com. And a very special thank you to our production partner, Joyla Reese Johnson at JoylaReeseJohnson.com.